everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Been an interesting past couple of days. See, I got a letter from my car dealership the other day. I opened and read it, and it said that they were suckas. Oh, no, wait, sorry, that's the letter from the government. No, this letter actually had kind of the opposite content. It more said that I was a sucka because Nissan had pulled a pretty good prank on me. So you know how normal airbags are supposed to deploy when you're in an accident and turn into big soft pillows so you don't bop your noggin on the dashboard when you hit something? Well, those scamps at Nissan decided to pull a little switcheroo and put in airbags that instead will shoot hot metal at your face if you're in an accident. Zing! Boy, would my face be red. You know, from the blood of where hot bits of metal had shot out of my dashboard and killed me. I feel like if they're going to do that, the least they could do is put the bits of metal in the shape of those uh, snakes that you would get in a novelty peanut brittle can. But either way, I got to admit, pretty good prank. And just to show that it was all in good fun, they generously offered to replace these novelty airbags with regular ones if I brought the car to the dealership. But they won't be able to schedule that for a few days now. And while I know that the airbags are only going to deploy and shoot me in the face if I get into an accident, and there's a pretty good chance that regardless of the airbags, if I get into an accident, I might be injured, it does lend an air of danger to every trip. And really every time I get behind the wheel makes me think, is this the time my car's going to murder me? Anyway, the whole experience has made me realize a few things about myself, probably the most important of which is I am apparently willing to risk my life for the most trivial of conveniences. This morning I was out of cream for my coffee, and I have milk in the house, and I went through a thought process that was basically, should I go out and get cream? I could walk, but that would take like 15 minutes. Or I could just drink my coffee with milk, but I really prefer cream. So, in the end, it turned out that I would rather risk having hot metal shot through my face than to drink coffee with milk or walk 15 minutes. So, thanks for this journey of self-discovery, Nissan. It's truly been an innovation that excites. Which has apparently been Nissan's slogan for the past seven years, and I had no idea, so great job on that too, Nissan. But enough about my car shooting me in the face. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Bernie DeLeo. To show off his muscular pecs, Prince Namor will often go topless. Hey, want to see Jack Norris flex? Nah, let's just hear the synopsis. Thanks, Bernie. Defenders, number 59, May 1978. Tyranny and Mutation. Written by David Anthony Kraft and Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Ed Hannigan, inked by Danny Green, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Hellcat, Nighthawk, and Devil Slayer. 
previously in The Defenders. Stephen Strange was snoozing in his sanctum sanctimonious when a masked jerk with a toothy bird beak for a mouth and a prehensile cape broke in, bopped him on the noodle, and swiped his mystical doodad the eye of Agamotto. While Steve was knocked silly, his former non-teammates were getting up to some silliness of their own. Valkyrie's new pal, a garrulous film student named Dollar Bill, had taken her and a de-hulkified Bruce Banner out for a night on the town at a cat-themed parody of the Playboy Club called The Felix Club. While her companions ogled the scantily clad waitstaff, Valkyrie picked up some weird vibes from a couple seated in the corner of the club. The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger informed her pals of her unquantifiable concerns, but Bruce Banner dismissed her unease as a manifestation of stress and suggested that the Azir undergrad unwind with a cocktail. Unfortunately for Valkyrie, her unsettling intuition was that rarest of conditions which could not be cured by the popular panacea of heavy alcohol consumption. There was indeed something strange about that couple. The woman seated at the table was Vera Gemini, the duplicitous leader of an evil cult which was literally hell-bent on completing a process called Xenogenesis, which would result in summoning a bunch of jerkhole demons to take over the planet. Earlier that evening, Vera had dispatched an underling called the Agent of Fortune to swipe Stephen Strange's magical amulet, which the cult planned to employ to hasten the demonification of the planet. Vera's table mate thought this whole Xenogenesis thing seemed like a shitty plan. His name was Eric Simon Payne, but he generally went by the more dramatic nom de guerre, Devil Slayer. Much as his initials would suggest, Eric was born with ESP. The tempestuous telepath served as a soldier in Vietnam and didn't much care for it. When he returned from the war, he started drinking too much, which somehow led to him taking a job as an assassin for the Mafia. Vera's cult got word of Eric's powers and potential moral ambiguity and recruited him to join up. They trained him in how to maximize his telepathic and telekinetic potential, and gave him a magic prehensile cape which allowed him to teleport to a strange pocket dimension, and the ability to instantly summon any weapon he could think of from the folds of his cloak. Neat! But when the former hitman found out that the evil cult he had joined was evil, he turned on his former mentors and vowed to destroy them. Fear had reached out to the self-styled Slayer and asked him to meet her at the Felix Club to discuss a temporary truce. Eric suspected subterfuge, but for reasons that seem unclear, he telepathically disguised his appearance and agreed to the meeting. Over drinks, Vera offered Devil Slayer a job as ruler of North America when the cult's plan for demonic domination came to fruition, but Eric angrily declined the offer and attacked Vera, dropping his disguise as he did so. From across the restaurant, Val and her companion saw a curiously costumed character attacking what appeared to be an unarmed woman, and attempted to intervene. Devil Slayer assumed that Valkyrie and a now re-hulkified Bruce were in cahoots with Vera, and a dining room Donnybrook erupted. Eventually, Eric managed to stuff the Hulk and Valkyrie into the folds of his cape, and transport them and himself to that weird dimension he can go to. Vera took advantage of this distraction to make a hasty escape herself, leaving a mystified dollar bill to explain to the cops what had just happened. Good luck, Bill! While Eric, Val, and the Hulk were continuing their kerfuffle on a cosmic plane, Vera fled back to the cult's headquarters in the jungles of the Yucatan. As a battered and bandaged Stephen Strange surreptitiously watched them on the orb of Agamotto, a group of anonymously attired occult assholes referenced some Blue Oyster cult song titles, and then sacrificed two archaeologists to summon a demon from beyond. Steve looked on helplessly and thought about how badly he had fucked up. Gadzooks! What will Steve do to recover from this uncharacteristic self-reproachment? After being recruited by the army, the mafia, and an evil cult, what terrible organization will Devil Slayer join next? And just what has Nighthawk been doing while his teammates battle the forces of evil? Stay tuned to find out.
Okay, so get captured by demons, the defenders, and importing automobiles and building himself a training device called the Murder Machine. Valkyrie and Devil Slayer are floating around in that weird pocket dimension that Devil Slayer's magic cape sent them to. They spend a couple of pages recapping the previous issue and yelling at each other for probably being evil, but then Eric notices that Val isn't able to maneuver around as easily as he can, and doesn't seem to be able to pull random weapons out of her cape. This contradicts his working theory that Valkyrie had been working for Vera's cult and had the same training and equipment that they had given him, so he decides to take an unprecedented course of action and listen to Valkyrie and see what she has to say. What? Gee, I don't know if this Eric guy's cut out for the superhero life. Once they have cleared up their misunderstanding, trademark, Val and Devil Slayer head off to a different part of Eric's Capeverse to look for the Hulk, who Eric is willing to stipulate may not be a demon after all. When they finally do catch up to the Jade Giant, he is locked in combat with one of the denizens of this strange land. Hulk's playmate is a large sentient creature that looks like someone tried to make a half-parrot, half-bear out of shards of broken stained glass. It's called an Oort Beast, on account of it is constantly saying, Oort! It is rad, and I want one. Hulk keeps trying to punch the Oort Beast, but the Oort Beast keeps teleporting away and saying, Oort. Hooray! Devil Slayer and Valkyrie show up and explain to the Hulk that the misunderstanding, trademark, portion of their story is over, and they're now ready to move on to the team-up, tiny R in a circle, portion of the adventure. Hulk is a little annoyed, and would maybe still like to smash Devil Slayer should the opportunity present itself, but he agrees to go along, for now. Eric points out that Vera had mentioned that the cult stole Doctor Strange's mystical what's-it, and that maybe they should check on him and see if he's okay. Hulk and Val reckon that's probably a pretty good idea, so Eric teleports them all to Steve's sanctum. When they arrive, they find that Steve's head is covered with bandages from where he got bopped on the noggin, and he's still moping around about what a bad job he did protecting the Eye of Agamotto. Steve and Eric bond over the fact that they both have prehensile capes, and neither one of them likes to listen. Steve fills the rest of the gang in on the details of the sacrifice he had witnessed at the end of the last issue on his Orb of Agamotto. Wait, didn't that toothbeaked guy steal the Orb of Agamotto? No. That was the Eye of Agamotto. See, the Eye is kind of like the Game Boy to the Orb's NES. The graphics aren't as good, and it doesn't have as many games, but it's more portable. Also, you can use it as a flashlight, and I guess maybe it can banish demons? Or summon them? The Eye of Agamotto, that is. Not the Game Boy. Probably. But the Eye of Agamotto doesn't have Tetris, so it's kind of a wash. While Steve and Devil Slayer continue to develop their unlikely animal friendship, deep in the jungles of the Yucatan, Vera's cult is getting up to some decidedly unsavory shenanigans. Hey, I know that they're pretty busy and all, what with plotting to conquer the world and install a regime of demonic dominance, but if they have any free time, they should really try to get some papazules while they're down there, because them shits is good. Anyway, Vera has a little chat with the demon that they summoned the other day. Turns out his name is Belathauzar, which is a little weird because last issue his name was Balthazar, but whatever. He's about 15 feet tall and is a two-faced jerk, both in that he is duplicitous and in that he literally has two faces on his flaming head. Gee, Dormammu barely has one face on his flaming head, mostly just eye holes in a ski mask. Come to think of it, Ghost Rider doesn't really have a face on his flaming head either. 
When it comes to having faces on a flaming head, advantage Bella Thalzar. Bella Thalzar isn't too crazy about Vera on account of she's apparently a half-demon, half-human, and in addition to his other evil tendencies, Bella is kind of a bigot. But even he has to admit, she's done a pretty good job plotting the Earth's destruction. Due to the cult's machinations, a whole bunch of evil demons are walking around impersonating humans and wearing their skin like a scuba suit. Most of them are politicians and world leaders, but some of them are just muggers and serial killers and run-of-the-mill jerkwads who are sowing fear and hatred and just kind of generally making the world a shitty place. For his part, Belathazar assumes the identity of the commander of an American Air Force base so that he can have access to fighter jets and nuclear weapons and can start a giant war. You know, I'm starting to see why Eric isn't too keen on these evil cultists. They're real assholes. Meanwhile, back at the Defender's headquarters in rural Long Island, Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, is zooming around recklessly in a fancy sports car that Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, is letting her borrow. Kyle is having a conniption fit as he watches her drive around because he's worried that she will crash and he'll be out $50,000 and will probably have to rifle through his couch cushions for all of seven minutes to come up with that kind of cash. Patsy eventually pulls over, and when he sees that his vehicle is undamaged, Kyle calms down a little bit. In an attempt to placate the perturbed plutocrat, Hellcat asks him about the elaborate carnival-like machinery that is set up all over the grounds of the abandoned riding academy that the defenders call home. The billionaire duel bird enthusiast explains that it's no carnival. He would never spend millions of dollars on something as frivolous as that. No, no, no. He spent millions of dollars building an elaborate death trap for himself so that he could test out his fancy new costume. As he talks, Kyle heads over to the team of technicians that he has made complicit in his attempt at suicide by gadgetry. The pit crew helps him don his improved duds and turns on the device he has dubbed the murder machine. Gotta believe that thing is not OSHA compliant. After getting dressed, Kyle zooms around with his new jetpack and tests out his infrared goggles, which probably allow him to see in the dark as well as two men with good eyesight. Then he approaches the murder machine. His objective is to reach the keypad at the center of the device. If he can punch in the code and turn the machine off, he has passed his test. If the machine kills him, he fails, but I guess from an engineering standpoint it would still be considered kind of a triumph for Richmond Industries. So, it's... Kind of a win-win. Hooray? Kyle manages to elude the first set of traps, but is soon thrown off balance and seems to be struggling. Hellcat decides to jump in and lend a hand, partly to save Kyle, but mostly because it looks like fun. She ends up getting her feet tied together by a constricting ring that the death-delivering device dispenses, but she still manages to reach the center of the machine within a few seconds, because Patsy is the best. The only problem is... She didn't know that there was a keypad there, and accidentally mashes all of the buttons, which sends the murder machine into overdrive. Or, since it's a machine that's trying to kill him, I guess you could say she sends it into maximum overdrive. You know, because of that movie? The one that's based on a Stephen King story that was kind of a ripoff of that Theodore Sturgeon story, Killdozer? Man, I love Killdozer. I mean the story. Although the movie and the band are both pretty good, too. Anyway... Killdozers aside, Kyle's machine is about to do what its name would imply, when who should show up to the rescue? No, not Emilio Estevez, or even Yeardley Smith. No, it's the Hulk, who begrudgingly rescues Kyle, remarking as he does so that he is tired of always having to save puny bird noses' life. Hooray! 
Val and the Hulk help Kyle and Patsy to their feet, and suggest that they head back to the Sanctum to see if they can lend a hand to Steve and his new best friend, Devil Slayer. As a concussed Kyle and his comrades commence their commute to the city, one of their former teammates is dealing with difficulties of her own. In a lab in Moscow, two government scientists discuss the fact that Tanya Belinsky, aka the Red Guardian, is still too radioactive to leave the facility, and for the safety of the population at large, she may need to live the rest of her life in captivity. Bummer. As his crimson-clad communist compatriot copes with her continued confinement, Steve undertakes an astral journey to infiltrate the demonic realm that Bella Thauzar and his cohort call home. Normally, even the Sorcerer Supreme would be unable to travel through this realm. But if he stands near Devil Slayer, and they both think real hard about the magic cape, then they can for some reason. Fair enough. The plan is for Steve to sneak through the demon dimension, hone in on the purloined Eye of Agamotto, and yoink it through the gateway that the sacrificed at Belathazar left open. Even though he and Eric are both thinking cape thoughts as hard as they can, progress through the unearthly realm is slow and painful. He's nearly reached his goal when a demon spots Ghost Steve and launches an attack. Yes, Steve wasn't being as stealthy as he thought he was. I bet he was singing a song to himself about how sneaky he is. And capes. Like a, No demon can see me, I'm the sneaker of supreme. My new friend has a cape, maybe we can get ice cream. Mmm, ice cream. Oh shit, demons! The demons attack Steve en masse. The self-styled sneaker Supreme is holding his own until Vera shows up in her demonic form and somehow uses the Eye of Agamotto to turn Steve's astral self solid and then transform him into a demon. Dang. Back in New York, Devil Slayer senses that something has gone wrong with his new pal's quest. He uses his Cloak of Shadows, which is, I guess what you call that fancy cape thing, to teleport himself to the temple in Mexico that his nemeses operate out of. When he arrives, he is immediately attacked by that Toothbeaked asshole who stole Steve's doodad and kicked off this whole fiasco in the first place. Toothbeak wants Eric's old job title, the Reaper of Souls, and Vera told him that the only way he's going to get that promotion is if he murders Eric. Man, that cult really needs a better HR department. As Devil Slayer struggles with the results of the fact that his former cult had a ladder of promotion that rewards competition over collaboration, Valkyrie and the rest of her team knock on the door to Steve's sanctum sanctimonious so that they can offer their assistance to the supercilious sorcerer. They're surprised when Dollar Bill answers the door. The usually gregarious cinephile solemnly informs the defenders that he has been hanging out at the sanctum ever since Val and the Hulk disappeared from the Felix Club, and he has some bad news for them. His club membership has been revoked. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Doctor Strange is dead! <laughs> to be concluded. Man, now I have Steve's song about capes and ice cream stuck in my head. Mmm, ice cream. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's, uh... A little gray and rainy outside, which is appropriate for the time of year mm -hmm. where we live. I'm also not quite ready. I feel like I've maybe said this at the beginning of the last 20 or so episodes. <laughs> yeah, you're not ready for summer to be done. Nope. I am ready for summer to be done. I'm getting my winter body right. <laughs> Eating a lot of pasta. Yeah. You know, just uh, carbo-loading. So, you know, it's a nice time of year. You get to wear blazers. That's fun. Oh, like a men's sport jacket yeah 
Okay. Yeah, it's like the first time of year when you're not dressed kind of like a dork. And it's nice. Huh. I never thought of it like that. Oh, it's the most sartorially magic time of the year. Oh. I do like Halloween. I mean, I never tend to have the wherewithal to dress up for it, but I love the idea. Sure, sure. Uh, well, it's like, you know, we live a few hours from the ocean. I don't get out there that often, but I know it's there. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Halloween. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, that I know I could participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, scare those demons away. Speaking of demons... What did you think of this issue? Well, I liked it. Yeah. Some I... stuff happened, but not a lot of stuff. But also Some... a lot of stuff. Yeah, okay. So the biggest thing... Is that the, what's it called when they come back? Xenogenesis? Yeah, the Xenogenesis. Is well underway. We got a scary two-headed, two-faced, or just two-faced? Just one-headed, two-faced. One-headed, two-faced. Yeah. uh, Fire dude, demon. Yeah, who is called Belethazar, despite the fact that last issue he was called Balthazar. Yep, so I did some Googling. I was like, oh, that sounds like a demonic, like, biblical demon name. He was one of the wise men, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, that's about, about like... Balthazar. Nor- normally, yeah, Balthazar. So they just took that and kind of tweaked like, it and made gave it... Like, said it with a weird accent. What's weird is in future issues, he goes back to being called Balthazar. Mm. So I guess he just, like, call me whatever you want, Balthazar, Belathazar, just don't call me late for dinner. And by dinner, I mean the Earth's souls. Oh, my. Yeah. And he's one of those guys, which is rare for a demon. Normally, they're pretty hung up on nomenclature. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to say their true name with a flat mid-Atlantic accent. I liked this issue once I spent some time with it. At first, it was just too much for me to take in all at once. There's a lot of words in this issue. Mm-hmm. And a lot is kind of going on in terms of exposition and in terms of buildup. In terms of the story advancing, you're right, there's not all that much of it, but it took me a couple of read-throughs to be like, okay, no, I'm now not just sounding out all these words in my head. I actually now have a sense of the shape of the story that it's trying to tell. But it took me a while to get there with it. Yeah, it was it was a busy issue, word-wise, for sure. And I wondered if part of that was, and it could be that I... Didn't notice this in credits of past issues, but I did notice that there were two people credited with words, and that's not only Kraft, but uh, Hannigan also got a word Yeah, credit. this is a different setup. In previous issues, it was just Kraft writing, or in the previous issue, it was just Kraft writing, and this time it is Kraft and Hannigan. I think that's one part of it. Another part of it is we're a few months into Jim Shooter's reign as editor-in-chief, And the previous editor-in-chief had been Archie Goodwin, who's the editor of this issue. Next issue, Jim Shooter takes over as the editor of the title as well. He was big on the editorial mandate of every issue might be somebody's first issue. So you need to reset the storyline a little bit and have like an exposition of what's happening each time. And I can understand that as a concept, but the way it's done here is really busy. Another thing is just in addition to the sheer volume of words that's going on in this, the layouts of the word bubbles are kind of clumsily done. And there's a lot of instances in which it doesn't follow intuitively, and you have to hunt around to find where the next thing is supposed to be coming from. And that was something that gave me a lot of issues in this. It 
makes kind of sense in the opening pages when they're in the weirdo holodeck planetarium dimension that uh, the Shadow Cloak takes them to. Mm-hmm. And it kind of adds to the disorientation. I still didn't like it, but thematically it kind of made sense. But later on, it's still going on when there's a scene where the demon's talking and we got a bunch of faces and shit. And with that one, it's like, wait a minute, there's one in the lower corner that I think I'm supposed to read before this other one, but my eyes are naturally led in this direction. And that was kind of frustrating for me. Yeah, I had the same experience. It makes you realize you take for granted word boxes and bubbles being laid out in an intuitive manner. Yeah, it's a language that we kind of have come to understand just and have internalized and when it's not done in the way that we expect it really throws you it's like in movies when people break the plane like when the the axis of the camera moves and it's like wait a minute people are running in the wrong direction and you lose a sense of place it's something that you don't think about but when it happens it's just kind of jarring so that was kind of annoying to me but like i said once i spent some time in the story there was a lot that i did enjoy about it The cover is gorgeous. It is once again George Perez. Um, But as pretty as the cover is, it's a big fight scene between the Defenders and Nighthawk's murder machine. (laughs) Which, man, (laughs) just don't build one of those. Don't build any device called a murder machine. Well, unless you intend to use it for murdering, but for... But yeah, I'm saying don't do that. From either a practical or from a moral standpoint, take your pick. Don't build a murder machine, Corey. Oh, you have to take that up with the military-industrial complex, but... I don't think they should either. When it... (laughs) Fair enough. It's a bad idea to be like, I want to get good at taking a punch. So, just punch me in the head a lot. That's one thing, but it's another thing. It's like, I want to get better at being shot at. So, just, uh, you know, shoot this gun in my head a bunch. Yeah, I'm going to go run around in the backyard. You take this bow and arrow... (laughs) Pretend I'm a fox. <laughs> now, this is a game you actually played, Corey, is it not? Uh, it wasn't so much that the kid was pretending to be a fox, but he was holding a fox target. So, thank goodness <laughs> it did not end in tragedy. Everybody was fine. We learned our lesson. Ah, uh, to unsupervised childhoods. Yeah. Uh. So, as much as I like the cover, it is misleading in a couple of ways. First of all, There's a bunch of rings being thrown around, and I really thought we were going to see the ringer again in this issue. He gets referenced, and apparently the rings that the murder machine tosses out are inspired by him. But we don't get to see him. We don't get to see him spewing his anti-capitalist, kind of hypocritical Marxist rhetoric. And I missed that. I wanted to see more of that. I like that Nighthawk specifically built those into his murder machine, though, because that was the one time he got his butt handed to him real bad. Dude, if he's going to incorporate every time he got his butt handed to him real bad, that machine's going to need to be a hell of a lot bigger. True, but I feel like, I don't know, maybe it was the debate with the pseudo-Marxist that really <laughs> kind of scored deeply. Yeah, and so he wants like to defeat a representation of that character. More so if, if they not... ever if they ever bump into each other in the future, he's like, I'm going to be ready for that guy. <laughs> he hurt my feelings bad. Makes sense. Yeah. The other way that the, the cover is misleading is that it says in the blurb, Tyranny and Mutation. They're not a new rock group. No, but they are the debut album of a rock group. And they're also not anything else that's specifically referenced in the issue, despite it being called that. It really seemed like the cover design was done when they knew the title of the issue, but not really what happened in it. And yeah, just talking about the Blue Oyster Cult references, they really slowed those down in here. 
I was looking for them this time, mm-hmm. and they're the pre-existing ones, but it seems like they really uh, really blew their load of Blue Oyster Cult references in the first issue and didn't save any for the rest of the three-issue arc. No, it, I didn't catch any new ones. It seemed like repeats. Mostly. No, it's like the Willennium. Like, Will Smith names this whole millennium after himself, had a bunch of movies in the first few years of it, He's already started slowing down, and the dude has, like, 980 years to go. Pace yourself, Will Smith! It's mm. a long millennium. Advice for us all. Mm. But mostly for Will Smith. Mostly for Will Smith, yeah. Okay. What did you think about the Ork Beast? <laughs> I liked it. I uh, love that little guy. Ork, Ork, Ork. It's a cute, like, pig-like noise, and uh, he's playing with the Hulk like he thinks Hulk's is his buddy's biting him. Uh-huh. I named him Snorfles. Snorfles. Oh. I think that's a good name because Ort means table scrap, so it just means he's always looking for table scraps, just wants to snorfle them up. Ort means table scraps. Yeah, I got pretty into crossword puzzles for a while, and that's a crossword puzzle word. Ort. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I just thought it was like a little cute piggish sound yeah i don't know if the writers knew that really like i said it's a word that i literally only know because it crops up in crossword puzzles kind of a lot yeah i noticed that that was a like i guess you could say it was a sound effect he, he just kept ording all <laughs> over the place on that he was, he's an eponymous creature uh-huh but then there was a another sound effect that we'll get into later that was a, a repeated word and it got me thinking about this idea of semantic satiation which is like, if you say the word fork mm-hmm. a million times, it starts to sound super weird or any word yeah. like that. I was like, yeah, what does that happen? So I read about it a little bit, and it's essentially the same parts of the brain are firing as you do that repetition. They get fatigued, and eventually they're like, they're like fuck this. Oh, and I wonder if that's like the same principle of like repetition in comedy, that like one time it's funny, two times is not funny, the third time it's funny again, and then like by the eighth time... To me, at least, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's kind of a sweet spot, and this issue hits its uh, epizuxis, where you... Whoa, that's a fun word. Dude, I did, do you have, I like, did... a word-a-day calendar? Uh, no, this was all... I learn every time we do this show, huh? Aww. I had to look things up. Nice. Yeah, epizuxis is like when uh, you repeat a word for emphasis. Hmm. What if you repeat the word epizuxis for emphasis, and you get semantic satiation from it? Um, yeah, it could happen. Oh, speaking of the rule of comedy coming in threes. So that's what I was doing intentionally with the cold open I did for the last show. That was apparently the exact same cold open or pretty close to it that I did for episode 99 of Tighten Up the Defense. By the time I do it three or four times, you guys are going to be laughing hysterically at my devilish mayonnaise mascot humor. (laughs) See, it's already working on this guy. Laughing at that. uh, That's a, what does that mean? I was positing that Hellman was a mayonnaise selling mascot. <laughs> and that's why Hellboy is called Hellboy instead of Hellman, even though he's a grown-up. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I've I've apparently done that twice now and <laughs> opens to the show. So, yeah, I was listening to an interview with um, Aisha Tyler, and uh, she said that there's a rule of threes in, in comedy mm-hmm. where, yeah, if you do it three times, that's yeah. the ticket. But if you do it more than that, it's even better. Unless you get semantically satiated. No, but then you were saying words sound weird when you do it. Weird's funny. And funny's money. Ka-ching! You guys, he was looking at me with such earnest eyes. 
when he said ka-ching. I'm a very serious man. So, we talked a little bit about how uh, Bella Thauzar, or Balthazar, or... Beth Hauser? Or Beth Hauser, or Cole Hauser, likes to show up on Earth and be a dick. Mm-hmm. When he does that, he talks a little bit about what his plan is and the way that those particular demons that are uh, taking part in the Xenogenesis operate. And he mentions that their goal is to cause fear and violence. And so they go about it subtly by taking over human host bodies and then placing themselves in positions of import. The cool thing, too, just a little side note on that, is they wear these demon spacesuits that look like people that allow them to live here. I think they wear human beings' bodies as spacesuits, is what he was saying. What? Yeah, that was the way I interpreted it. Oh, man. I thought it was just like a life model decoy that you could wear. No, no, no. They are provided with the persona of a native of Earth, which is worn as a form of life preservation suit to enable us to dwell in this environment. I think they, like, hollow us out and live inside us. Well, that's a little more sinister. I don't care for that. They're both pretty gross. I don't know. One's more like a costume... That's just a really good costume, and the other is is just evil. Yeah, I guess I don't like the first scenario, because it reminds me of that movie Meet Dave, um, the uh, Eddie Murphy movie, where he, he had a bunch of aliens living inside him and walking around in him like a robot. It was a bad movie, so mm-hmm. I think of it as being pretty gross. So the thing about Bella Thauzar's plan is, first of all, I get that it's a life preservation suit. It seems like it might be easier for them to sow fear and cause violence if they just showed up as a two-faced, 15-foot-tall flaming demon. Seems like that'd do the trick pretty good, too. Yeah. It seems like it's a constant trope in genre fiction that it's like, but we can't tell anybody about this fantastic thing. It never quite makes sense to me. Especially if, from the good guy's perspective, it's like, we can't let people know that there are aliens on Earth. It might cause a public panic. This guy specifically wants to cause a public panic. Let him know your demons. Let your demon flag fly, buddy. Sure. I don't know. Maybe it's the separation of about a decade between this and... I'm I'm struck with the parallels right now between the two storylines with the Teen Titans and... And this, like, it's, yeah. it's eerily yeah. similar, right in time for Spooky Month. Ooh. Yeah. But with the Titans, maybe it's that difference of uh, being in the 80s versus the 70s. Trigon comes down, and he's like, fuck all this. I'm big. I'm bad. I'm going to make everybody real scared. I'm pooping on your house. Pooping on houses. Whereas this two-faced guy is, yeah, he's like, okay, we just got to pretend to be... The clan. Uh, or Idi Chinese Amin. people, African people, and Arab people, and the clan. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. And Charles Manson. Well, you gotta throw Manson in there. Yeah. These are the people that it turns out have been secret demons the whole time. You got Chairman Mao, a guy who is probably supposed to represent Arafat. I think I read that in, like, notes about the issue at some point, although it really doesn't look very much like him. Um, you got Charles Manson. You got the Ku Klux Klan. You got Edie Amin. You've got a mugger who you can tell is evil because he's wearing green and purple. Oh, good point. You've got a guy that at first I thought was supposed to be John Belushi (laughs) (laughs) shooting a gun. And I was like, wait, what? Is John Belushi a secret demon? And I look closer. It's like, or is that from his expression on his face? It looks more like Andy Kaufman. I'm pretty sure that's actually supposed to be David Berkowitz, the uh, son of Sam murderer. Oh, that Um, makes more sense. But I was for a second just like, man, Ed Hannigan hates John Belushi. Or Andy Kaufman. Or Andy Kaufman. 
But so it's got all of those characters, and then it's just got a lady's face who I was unable to identify. And like when I was look, trying to look up online who the characters were, it doesn't mention her. I wonder if that's just a lady that Ed Hannigan knows that he doesn't like. I would totally be tempted to do that if I was like, so here's the list of super evil people who are secretly demons. My neighbor Florence. My first grade teacher, Mrs. Clough. Ooh, what did Mrs. Clough do? Oh, she was awful. She made me stay into the classroom when all the kids went out to recess because I didn't do my math fast enough. And then, you know, those kitchen timers that ding really loud. Yeah. She said it for like five minutes or whatever. And it's like, if you're not done with your math, by the time this bell goes off, like you're not going to get to go out to recess at all. Oh, damn. Yeah. Which stressed me out. So I did a bad job and then the bell dinged. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but my fourth grade teacher used to tell us that he didn't want to get too political, but he was pretty sure that if Nicaragua went communist, then overnight they would sneak up across the border and murder us all. So we had to be pretty careful about that. To fourth grade kids? Yeah, who were in New Hampshire, so it would be a hell of a trip from the uh, U.S.-Mexican border to New Hampshire, never mind from Nicaragua to the U.S.-Mexican border. I found out a few years after I wasn't in fourth grade anymore, he got fired for throwing a desk at a kid. Oh, the desk thrower. Yeah, this has come up before. Okay, but what's really weird is I mentioned that story online a little while ago, and somebody responded to it by saying, oh, was that Mr. So-and-so? And here's the thing. No, that was a totally different guy. So there were multiple fourth grade teachers in New Hampshire in the 80s who got fired for throwing desks at kids. It was an epidemic. Dang. Thank yeah. God they weren't middle school teachers. They would have killed somebody. Wait, why? Because middle schoolers are more annoying than fourth graders. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they're also more resilient. <laughs> <laughs> Very satisfying to see Hulk give Kyle what for when the murder machine goes bust. <laughs> Hulk is over Kyle's shit. Once again, Hulk must stop puny bird nose from killing himself. So, Hulk's been calling Kyle bird nose for a while. But, with Agent of Fortune, we now have a character who literally has a bird nose. When Hulk meets the Agent of Fortune, do you think he's going to be extra pissed that he has to come up with a new nickname for Kyle? Bird nose. Yeah. Hulk's going to be like, Ooh. Seriously? No. Ah. Bird Nose was perfect for Kyle, but it's even better for this guy. It's going to throw the whole thing out of whack. Do I, I? Okay, I'll call him Cape Man. Damn it! I just started calling Devil Slayer Cape Man. Okay, Val can still be Sword Girl. I should probably change it to Sword Woman. Jesus Christ, this whole Bird Nose thing is throwing everything all out of whack. Okay, Kyle, from now on, your new name's Fuckface. But this new guy... Yeah, what would he call him? Chicken Face? He's got teeth in the beak, too. I feel like that needs to come... Up at some point, like Toothbeak. Teethy Beaky. Teethy Beaky. That's what we got. <laughs> he's not normally into diminutives, the Hulk. No, he's not. It would be like Puny Toothbeak, maybe. It seems like there's probably a better name. Ugly Birdhead Man. Uh, Birdmouthed Wrestleface. <laughs> That's pretty good. Birdmouthed Wrestleface. It yeah. doesn't have the ring of Hulk's delivery. I think I can see him saying that. Birdmouth wrestle face, try hurt Hulk. But Hulk is strongest one there is. That's pretty good. Yeah. See? All right. 
What did you think of the new Hellcat Mobile? <laughs> oh man, she is a lot of fun in this issue. I like that she drives like crazy and does stunts in the car and um, freaks Kyle out real bad. Why do you think Kyle's so bent out of shape about this? He's really freaked out about the fact that she's driving and that she might wreck his car. He points out the fact that he spent $50,000 on this car. That's not a lot of Kyle money, I don't feel like. He even makes a point to say something to the effect of I'm not made out of money, doesn't he? He says he's not made out of money and he points out twice that he paid $50,000 for the car. What's weird about that is not that long ago, a few issues ago, during their fight with Steve as the Red Raja, they crashed a Bentley. And he didn't give a fuck about it. 1978, a new Bentley cost $84,000. That's almost twice as much as the Hellcat Mobile, which is what I'm calling this, because I like the fact that she <laughs> she borrowed his car for a test drive and then just decided it was hers. Yeah. I don't know. He has a sentimental attachment to it. I guess. Brought it over from, from Europe. Yeah. Another thing that I liked about Hellcat in this is that she fights the murder machine like I try to fight Tony Hawk Pro Skater. <laughs> yeah. She's just button mashing. <laughs> yeah, but when you mash the buttons, you do quite well. Sometimes. I do quite well against, like, you and Lee. I don't do quite well against people who know how to play Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Hey, man, I read some tips. <laughs> and I was trying to do the, the button sequences. It's just, it's hard. It's a hard game. And apparently the murder ma- machine is pretty hard to, to beat, too. Well, in her defense, I don't think she knew that all the buttons were on the thing she was, like, vaulting off of. It was just... Just coincidence that she happened to vault off of it. It's a weird design for a murder machine. It's very stupid because the thing with all the buttons is in the very middle of the machine. When it, If it's in mid-murder, it's going to be really hard to get to those buttons to turn them on or off. Yeah, it's like having a safe word that's in a language you don't speak that's difficult to pronounce. And hard to remember. Yeah. It's like putting an off button in the, you know, the little thing in the bottom of the blender that's like the bolt that holds the blades on? Yeah. It's like putting one there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really stupid. Right in the center. No, yeah. it's safe. It's right yeah. in the center of the blender. You have to keep your finger steady. Right. Bad job, Kyle. He makes a big deal about later on, too, giving uh, Stark a run for his money. And it's like, nope. Especially because he says that he bought most of the equipment from Stark. Oh, no, just some components. <laughs> yeah, I think... Some componentry. I think he just, like... I'm gonna put Ikea out of business because I just built this awesome bookshelf all by myself from a bookshelf I bought at Ikea. But, but I used the Allen wrench all by myself. Now, he's taking way too much credit. Also, all of the people working on the machine, which I gotta believe is a lot of people, know his secret identity. He's got his mask off in front of them. I think we can easily say that he is the least concerned or maybe the worst at the secret identity thing. And that's saying something. It really is. And he's one of the people who should be the most concerned about it because he canonically has an extensive criminal record as Nighthawk. But the guy's calling him Mr. Richmond as he is putting the suit on him. And he's wearing the full suit. He doesn't have the mask on, but he's got the fucking emblem on his tummy. And it's a cybernetic suit that connects to his brain. That would scare me. Also, I mean, hasn't his brain been through enough recently? Yeah, you'd maybe want to stop poking that thing with electronics. I mean, it's not like that thing was mint on card before it got scooped out of his head and jammed in a punch bowl. But he wants his fancy jetpack. 
Got to keep one step ahead of the ringer. It is pretty cool, though. His equipment is pretty cool. It would freak me out. I, I don't want robots reading my brain. Man, there was something on the television in the waiting room at the car place, the mechanics, <laughs> the other day when I was there. And they were talking about, they called it juice jacking or something. And it's when you charge your computer or your phone at a public place, like with a USB cable, that apparently people have figured out some way to transfer data from your device through through that mechanism. Oh, man. And steal information. And there's these little box things you can get that you plug into the between your your device and the power source to prevent that. I would be more concerned that the people making those boxes are stealing your info. Mm. That seems like a trick that they would do. Man, I wish we had thought of that. I mean, I don't know what we would do with people's info. I don't want people's info. It's the same thing like that telepathy thing. I don't need to know what you guys are looking at on the internet. It's fine. Just clear your browser history. Corey's making a very thoughtful face. <laughs> I think he does want to look at what you're looking at. Oh, no, no. I'm just thinking of, like, what if, you know, a bunch of people did want to give us all their information? There's probably something useful I, you could do with it. I don't want it. I don't want it You either. guys just keep chilling out. Look at pictures of Dragon's fucking cars. Have fun, man. Maybe don't do it around Corey. He's, he's making a face. <laughs> he's very thoughtful. Don't worry, your data is perfectly safe with us, dear yeah, listeners. Yeah, just, uh, just leave it uh, in an unmarked envelope. Just put all of your data in a brown paper envelope and uh, bury it in your yard. Safety first. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a little bit surprised at how easily OESP is won over to the Defender's way of thinking in this. Yeah. I mean, it's been established that he's been kind of paranoid ever since he returned from fighting in Vietnam. He also has felt that he was betrayed by the army mm -hmm. when he joined them. I guess he worked as an assassin for the mob for a while, and he doesn't feel great about that. And then he joined this cult, and he felt betrayed by them. And when he, then he found out that they were evil. He doesn't have a great track record of joining organizations, and he brings that up. But he's super flattered and impressed that Steve knows his name. So he decides to join up with this organization that he's never heard of based on the word of a guy who has been spying on him, who has a prehensile cape, who knows magic. How'd that work out for you last time, buddy? It may come down to costume choices. The scene in which they're shaking hands. They clearly shop at the same glove retailer. They both have kind of the same style of the uh, magicians uh, doing dishes gloves. Yeah, and they have the same cloak. But the thing is, that was the costume that the evil cult gave to Eric because that's their uniform. And that's what the, what's his face, the agent of fortune is wearing too. So it's a costume of people that cannot be trusted by this man. Oh, and yet he and does. Cloaks. Yeah, dish gloves and cloaks. I mean, granted, Steve doesn't have a bird beak, but neither does Eric, and he was working for those guys for a while, too. Oh, no, I feel like they saw each other as real kindred spirits. They did, and I think even Val, like, comments on, like, wow, they seem to be getting along really well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, good for them. It's nice and rare that Steve makes a friend. It just seems rather odd that, that Eric decided to trust him. I wonder if it was a similar thing where when he met up first with the evil cult, he's like, oh, these guys seem pretty cool. They got these dishcloths, got a big flowing cape. Mm -hmm. All right. Seem on the up and up to me. Well, fool him once. Fuck those guys. Mm -hmm. Fool him twice. Doctor Strange is your friend, so. Yeah, that is how that old saying goes. 
Why do you think Wong let Dollar Bill into the sanctum? At the end of the issue, when Steve's apparently dead, the rest of the defenders come and knock on the door, and they're like, wow, taking Wong a while to answer the door. And it took, Dollar Bill answers the door, and he's like, hey, uh, Wong let me in when I showed up after you guys all got kidnapped from the club we were hanging out at. Bad news, Steve's dead. Mm-hmm. What is Wong's vetting process for letting people hang out in Doctor Strange's sanctum? Because it seems like it should be a little bit more stringent than, uh, I'm a friend of a friend. Can I come in and hang out unsupervised with all this magic shit? Yeah, they haven't met before, right? I'm pretty sure they have not. I don't know, maybe... And I mean, like, Dollar Bill isn't even wearing dish gloves and a cape. But he probably had a big bag of Jamaican incense. Oh, he probably did. Maybe that's why it took him a while to get to the door, too. Either way, that's not a that's not a great I'm not saying that's a good vetting process. Some stranger knocks on your door. He's <laughs> like, I know your friends. And uh, can we spark up in here? All right. Get in here. Actually, D. I did let somebody in like that once a long time ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, this guy showed up at my, my old house and was like, hey, does <laughs> still live here? That was our friend who lived upstairs. And I was like, nope. And he's like, ah, oh, dang, I was just looking for a place to smoke this joint. And I was like, well, all right. <laughs> he was a little weird, but not like, you know, he, yeah. was, he was harmless. Mm-hmm. So if you're a home invader who's looking to steal Corey's things, <laughs> his address is... No, I wouldn't do that again. In retrospect, also, like about halfway through the joint, I was like, oh... This is a bad idea. Why did I make this choice? Yeah, so guys, don't bother showing up at 6969 Made Up Place. <laughs> Ooh, good one. Nice to see Tanya again, I guess. Man, she's gonna get tired of being in that uh, laboratory or whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's a research facility. She's hoping they can uh, unradiation her up, but uh, so far, no dice. Nope, she's very radioactive. She really is. I hope this doesn't mean we're going to see Codename Fuckface again. Ugh. I don't see a need for that. No, he's probably hanging out off in the Savage Land or whatever. I think she should go there. I, uh, I guess. Not if he's there. No, not if he's there. And also, I don't I don't want him there either, though, now. Like, he's going to poison, radioactively poison all those goddamn dinosaurs. Mm. Not cool. They already went extinct once. No, he, he gets to go somewhere else. But uh... maybe he could go to the moon. I sense that perhaps that was foreshadowing that Red's powers could be used to destroy the Two-Faced Demon guy. Oh, that would be nice. And then after all the nukes got all used up on the uh, de-demonification, and uh, there you go. Fair enough. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Hmm. Who are those two dudes on the cover? What two dudes? The uh, the Hardy Boys there. Oh, yeah. Left. I think those are the Hardy Boys. They were trying to solve the case of the smuggled sandwich or whatever. Mm. Yeah, what are they doing there? I think that is the Hardy I mean, you've got a blonde guy and a brown-haired guy. That's how they're always described in the book, mm-hmm. many times within the book. So, uh, yeah, I'm assuming they were investigating the murder machine. Although, murder machine seems like it should be being investigated by the Scooby gang. Like, the mystery machine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was trying to do Shaggy, but it came out. Uh, what, would, what would he be saying? I uh, just like something about what a... Like Zoink Scoob, it's like totally murdering us. Yeah. We're being hacked to bits. Would you drag my torso to safety for a Scooby snack? <laughs> <laughs> There's no way you could say that if your torso is missing the rest of your body. He's pretty high. 
Well, I don't know. I feel like you need the legs and stuff to hold all the blood in. That allows you to... Well, ideally, yeah. <laughs> you know, talk We don't live that. in a perfect world, Corey. No. But you know what is perfect? Hmm. Rick's singing voice. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you. So, Corey, mm-hmm. what was your pie not made out of steel for this issue? What words did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? There was a, a longer passage. I mean, this was full of longer passages, but I think I think that was my favorite. And um, yeah, I believe it was on page 10, and it's uh, strange talking in what I took as a kind of poetic manner mm. about um, how he used his powers to track down the missing eye of Agamotto. And he says... As well as myself, other observers bore witness to the evil ceremony. But these lurked in eager anticipation of the rite's vile consummation. And within the shadows that hid them, I sensed the purloined eye of Agamotto. Mm. You went a little uh, Kronos from Venom at the end there. <laughs> it can't be hoped. <laughs> so that was the, the longer passage that, I don't know, I just had mm-hmm. a nice ring to it. I also got a kick out of when uh, ESP referred to Hulk as a brainless gargoyle. Nice. It's, it's a good it turn seem... of phrase. I really enjoyed. We talked about it briefly when Hulk rescued Kyle from his own murder machine. Bah! Once again, Hulk must stop puny bird nose from killing himself. I really enjoyed that. But my favorite is a little bit of dialogue that one of the scientists says to the other. Is this the yogurt shit? It is. What happened to your Georgian optimism, Vladimir? Perhaps you are not getting enough yogurt here in Moscow, eh? I don't get it. Can you explain it? I, when I read that, I was like, I bet Hub can explain this. So, okay, short answer, no. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> but what the heck. But I would like to discuss it further in our next segment. Behold or be gone. Corey. Optimism-infused Slavic yogurt. Behold or be gone. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so I'll walk you through it. Okay. Apparently, Vladimir is from Georgia, Mm -hmm. the Soviet Republic, not the United States. Presumably, they have very good yogurt there. But something about this yogurt makes Vladimir overly optimistic. So I have not had Georgian yogurt. But I like me some Kachkapuri pretty good. This is cheese bread. So those dudes know their way around dairy products. Okay. There's probably some pretty good yogurt. Apparently it makes you very optimistic. Optimism-infused Georgian yogurt. Behold or be gone, Corey. Oh, man. I'm a 100% behold with the extreme, like, caveat of I can only really have it at certain times because I am wildly optimistic about my ability to get pretty much anything done within a certain (laughs) time frame so if i have that stuff i mean all bets are off with me even getting here to record this thing that's fair but i really like yogurt i really like yogurt too and like i said i i trust the uh georgian community in general with dairy products they seem to do a good job so i bet that it's delicious yogurt i can understand the appeal of wanting to start your day off maybe with a little bit of optimism Initially, I'm like, oh, do I want, like, mind-altering drugs to start my day off? And then I thought, hell yeah, I do. That's what I do every day with coffee. 
Sure. Kind of same thing. You get a little bit of energy. You get a little bit of optimism. A lot right there to recommend itself for optimism-infused Georgian yogurt. Also, probably keeps you regular. Yeah, lots That's of nice. good for your microbiome. Sure. Here's the problem. What if it's the stuff? You know, from the early 80s low-budget horror movie, The Stuff? That is... It's mind-altering, addictive yogurt. First of all, when you asked me the behold or be gone question, you in no way, shape, or form indicated this was an addictive substance. It is mind-altering yogurt. How is it not going to be addictive? Also, <laughs> the stuff in the stuff I always thought was much more like a marshmallow fluff consistency than a yogurt consistency i thought of it as yogurt i think there's a pretty good chance that this might be the stuff so i'm gonna say be gone because i don't want aliens taking over my brain i feel like i've been set up sir <laughs> i'm just saying okay if it's... you have to take all of these things into account when you're deciding on a yogurt choice might it be an alien substance like in the early 80s movie the stuff that is going to try to take over your brain and conquer the earth. That was deeply troubling to me as a child. Yes. Um, that said, I like yogurt, and if I use it responsibly, I could deal with a little bit more optimism, especially in the morning. All right. I'm going to take the risk. All right. I am not. I'm a little bit more afraid of the stuff than you are. So we got one behold, one be gone for optimism-infused Georgian yogurt. And if you, dear listeners, would like your very own optimism-infused Georgian yogurt, just dig in the ground real deep. Maybe you'll find some. That's where the stuff came from. Leave an envelope <laughs> full of cash and all your data. Bury it three feet deep in the left corner of your yard. And drop us a note. Ooh, make us a little treasure map. Burn the edges. It'll be fun. Oh, yeah. I'll leave your data alone, but I will take that cash. Corey's going after the data. He wants to see those pictures of nasty dragons fucking cars. Can't get enough of it. Be gone! Behold. <laughs> Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? I had two. Okay. One we already talked about, which was ort, ort, ort. Pretty cute. Ah, <laughs> Snorfles. Snorfles. Uh, Snorfles the, uh, what is he? He's an ort beast. That's true. He's very intelligent, it says, too. I think my actual favorite one is the sound that it makes when ESP's cape wraps up the Hulk and zaps him back to Earth. Mm, that is a good one. Which is... Poit, poit. Poit, poit's pretty nice. Pretty cute. Yeah, I liked that one. I'm definitely going with Ort as my favorite. But there was another sound effect that was when the evil cult is summoning Balathouser, Bella Abzug, uh, it makes the noise hiss. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. I envisioned that to be the noise that the corpses of the two people they had just sacrificed, like being ashified, if that's a word. Yeah, they're basically being disintegrated with, with extreme heat. And it's a very disturbing sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Throwing those Z's at the end, mm -hmm. not just a hiss. Adds a little oomph. Yeah, sinister. Yeah, I don't care for that. You know what I do care for? Hmm. Ort, ort, ort! <laughs> it's Snorfles! Snorfles the Ort Beast. <laughs> good old Snorfles. Speaking of optimism, or just a good attitude in general, the Hulk's all complaining about, you know, ah, fuck this place, I don't like it. Snorfles is over there just being like, man, what is his problem? This place is great! This is the best of all worlds! How can you not like it here? Hulk? Yeah, 
And apparently it is a pretty good place because as the text does point out, Snorfels is sentient and highly intelligent. So if he thinks it's the best of all possible worlds, that's got to be a pretty sweet dimension he's chilling in. Sure. Every Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was your best defender? I picked Val as the best defender because she's able to convince ESP to join the team, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, She basically gets the team together to start fighting the good fight. And uh, just in general, she's level-headed and tough and, uh, you know, has all those, those characteristics that we that we like in, in Val. Yeah. I uh, I had a little bit of trouble finding one for this category. This is the part of the story. It's the second of a three-issue arc, which I think in general is a tough time to find someone who's doing the best job because traditionally it's the part of the story where hope is lost and everything seems to be going wrong. I ended up going with Devil Slayer for uh, a couple of reasons. For listening to reason from Val when they are locked in the alternate dimension together. Val, I think, had come around at the end of the last issue to realizing that they should be on the same page. So good job for her then. But in this issue, I feel like Devil Slayer pretty quickly listens to reason and is able to put his past prejudices behind him. And also, I appreciate the fact that although it may not be the wisest decision, despite the fact that he's uh, been betrayed before, he's ready to take a chance again, much like a certain Barry Manilow song instructs us to do. That song being, ready to take a chance again. (laughs) Barry Manilow. There's a Chevy Chase comedy from the early 80s that has that as its theme song, and I can't remember what it's called. It's called Probably Not That Great of a Movie. It's called, yeah, probably doesn't hold up very well and is very problematic. Three. (laughs) (laughs) At least. Yeah. Hi, guys. This is Editor Hub from the future. Well, the future of when the rest of this episode was recorded. From the perspective of the listener, it's from the more shallow past, I guess. Anyway, the movie's called Foul Play, so you don't need to send me emails and stuff. Thank you. I mean, you can send me emails about other things. I like hearing from you. It's just I know that the movie is called Foul Play, so you don't need to inform me of that. Thanks. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? If you're going to build a murder machine, don't put all the buttons in the middle. Kyle, God damn it. Yeah, I had Kyle as a possible option. He certainly did a bad job in that regard. And yeah, also just being oddly petulant about his vehicle with Patsy, who's being a real treat. So he was definitely an option for me. Steve was a pretty strong option. Dude went and got himself killed after moping about about having his uh, his magic eyeball stolen. Yeah, it's like two strikes. Yeah. Oh, if he doesn't have his magic eye, how's he going to look at those uh, 3D posters? Oh, shit. He's going to be fucked. Mm-hmm. Is it a sailboat? I can't tell. Wong! Wong, tell me what's in that picture. I'm trying to unfocus my eyes. But without the Agamotto, I'm... Oh, it just looks like a bunch of squiggles. It's hard. Ah, so I think I am going to go with Steve as the worst offender, but I did give serious consideration to the Hulk. He uh, he pulled it out by rescuing Kyle, I guess, although that's kind of a mixed bag in and of itself. Hmm. And I was pretty displeased with him for trying to mix it up with Snorfels. Not cool, buddy. Hmm. You're an invader in this dimension. Take some time to find out what's going on before you just start taking swings at a nice orc beast like Snorfels. But ultimately, I'm going with Steve. In addition 
to a best defender and a worst defender, each issue of a defender's comic also has a sucka, a character who acts in a way that is uncharacteristic for their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucka. In this issue, who is your sucka? It's come up a couple times already, but I had a Devil's Lair ESP for basically the reasons that we already mentioned. There's not a lot of good reason why he would kind of turn on a dime in the midst of a fight with Val in this other dimension mm. and just be like, oh, suddenly everything has snapped into laser sharp focus. Everything you say makes perfect sense. And I will join the team because Doctor Strange recognized my name and that feels good i guess even though he totally reminds me of the bad cult guys that screwed me over before it is weird it seemed like that his whole reason for distrusting val initially well i mean i guess she did attack him that was that but he assumed that because she had a cape she could pull any weapon she wanted out of the cape and so when she's in the dimension she keeps going to try to get dragon fang back and he's like oh well she's not just pulling more weapons out of her cape she must not be a demon that was interesting, but it also did make me think, oh, does he think everybody with a cape is an evil demon? I mean, in the Marvel Universe, he's going to have a pretty full dance card if he goes around attacking everyone wearing a cape. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it's inconsistent with the way he treats Steve very soon after that. I decided to go with Kyle for uh, being hung up on that $50,000 he paid for the car when he crashed a much more expensive car and didn't give a shit about it pretty recently, also doesn't seem to be that upset about destroying the murder machine, which was presumably probably more expensive than the car, too. I would think so. I mean, I guess he's got to at least have some relief that it didn't murder him, but still. Sartorially speaking, what element of fashion did you feel was most worthy of note in this issue? I had some trouble finding new stuff. I did too. My Mine is a little bit of a stretch. I think we've done it before, but uh, I focused on a piece of interior design. Yeah, no, I, I stuck with clothes. Um, I had the guy you called out already earlier as being a bad guy who's, who's a burglar man, um, mm -hmm. super buff, wearing a really tight lime green sweater with a little like a purple beanie. Yeah, it's a good villainous look for, for a mugger. If you're going to do some mugging, mm -hmm. let people know who you are and what you're doing. I did notice Kyle's emblem seems oddly blobby in this. It's barely bird-shaped. It looks almost like a Rorschach test for the most part. And I'm wondering if that's part of the new design of the outfit. But yeah, that, that doesn't even look like a bird. It, it's like it's got the wings and then he's like, no, put more wings on it. I, I want smaller sets of wings all the way down. I've certainly had my issues with Kyle in the past and I, I continue to, but I have always kind of liked the way that he's dressed. And it's a weird modification to his outfit that... It's a bird carrying a lobster. Oh, totally. Terrifying. Lobster bird. I can see that being more intimidating. They should put bigger claws on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really want to are... strike terror into the heart of evildoers. Yeah. But for mine, that was a bit of a stretch. I want to talk about Steve Sanctorum because it looks decidedly different. It looks way more like 70s swinger pad but also in a way that everything's a little bit melty. And the thing that stuck out the most to me is what is even the point of that fucking handrail? Like, there's a tiny little staircase that leads down to the conversation pit, I guess, that he has in the sanctum now. But it's a weird melty banister that comes up to, like, mid-calf. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna try to grab onto the handrail, you're gonna have to bend over to do it, 
It doesn't work decoratively. It doesn't work functionally. It's a goddamn nightmare. I hate well, I that handrail. I think you should write a letter. I'm glad I chose Steve as my worst. Because if he installed that handrail, it's it's just a fucking accident waiting to happen. You find out what Kraft and Hannigan are working on now, and you write to that publication. Hey, in issue 59, 1978, on page whatever, this handrail really made me angry. It's garbage. Sincerely, Nathaniel Hubbard. P.S. Please check out our podcast. P.P.S. Please bury all of your data and a large pile of cash <laughs> in the northwest corner of your yard. Your pal, Hub. Sounds like a plan. Corey, what was your favorite panel? Hexagonal psychedelic freakout, man. The opening page? Page two, actually. Oh. It is so cool because it's got Val and ESP tumbling through this psychedelic spacescape with this hexagonal thing in, mm-hmm. the, in the middle and it just for me it had a real sense of up is down down is up what's going on yeah there's multiple images of them tumbling through there and that is one of the pages where i was saying that the the path of the word bubbles is very difficult to follow which i found frustrating but it does help convey that sense of whoa what's going on in this crazy place also, you mentioned the hexagonal grid that they are weaving in and out of. You know what that could be? Hmm. Space bees. Oh. Looks like that could maybe be some kind of a space honeycomb mm-hmm. for space bees in that delicious dark dimension honey. Oh, man. Mm. I want to get my hands on that. Gotta get some space honey. I think my favorite panel, I, I had a few to choose from. There there was some, some good stuff in here. I did like the panel of the uh, two-faced Balthazar talking about all the world leaders that he was taking over with demon forms. I I thought that was pretty fun. Specifically for the weird... Yeah, it's probably supposed to be Son of Sam in retrospect, but really looks like an Andy Kaufman-John Belushi hybrid. Mm -hmm. Just shooting a gun at the demon's ankle. Yeah, that's that's, uh, striking. But I think for my favorite panel, I am going to go with... One that's on page seven that I call Sad Steve. He just looks so bummed out, he probably just realized what a bad banister he put in. (laughs) Look at him. Look at how sad he is. He's sad and mopey. It's very dejected. Yeah. It's a somewhat abstracted image, but it conveys a lot of emotion just in his body language. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's really well done. And I'm glad that he's sad because he put in such a bad handrail. And so that's my favorite panel. It's a little harsh, but I'll accept it. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? One of the Hulk's big takeaways from this is that despite it being a difficult thing for a lot of people to achieve, that putting in the effort to maybe sock away a little bit of savings and then use that to uh, get out and travel and see different parts of the world and interact with people and cultures that you haven't experienced before is a really valuable thing. How did he learn that in this issue? He learned that in this issue because he found that it was hard for him to like what he did not understand. Ah, we're talking about Snorfels. Yeah, so he's getting into it with Snorfels. And, you know, if he had taken the time of his own will... To go visit this ostensibly awesome place. Mm. His interaction with Snorfels probably would have been very different. 
Gotcha. Could have been, um, instead of stupid Ort Beast, it could have been, I don't know, Hulk's red friend, or whatever he would have called him. Hulk loves Snorfels. Right. Which, I prefer that scenario. So, but yeah, there is a point in there where he does say something about, like, I can't like it because I don't understand it. Mm. So it would be travel can expand your mind. Yeah, it helps make makes what, you know, is unfamiliar and, and therefore harder to like. Something that, you know, may still be different, but you feel like you've experienced it a little bit, and you know it a little bit better, and it hmm. makes you a more accepting person. That is a very good Hulk's rule. Thank you. I had the Hulk's rule being, there's no point practicing for what you cannot miss. It's derived from a evil Knievel quote. Um, when he was going to do a big, dangerous jump, a reporter asked him whether he had practiced. And his answer was, there's no use practicing for what you cannot miss. If I miss this jump in a test run, that means I'm dead and I will never get to do it for real. And I feel like the Hulk watching Kyle build his stupid fucking murder machine learned that lesson. Between that and he also did watch Evil Knievel say that. Mm. He, he was just like, yeah, what's the fucking point of building a murder machine where if you can defeat it, yeah, I guess you'll know that you can defeat it. If you can't defeat it, then you're dead. And you don't get to fight crime for real. And so, uh, yeah, there is no use practicing for a jump that you cannot miss is the Hulk's rule. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. And these wongs come to us from the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, May. During that month, what wong doings was wong doing? So this is a story more so about a... Uh... A Wong that could have been righted, but was missed, because Wong was busy with some other activities. To understand what those are, we have to go way back in time to Wong's childhood. And it's a little known fact that he spent a few years at the Peking Opera School as a child. Oh, really? Yeah. He learned a lot of his, uh, you know, what were the beginnings of his, his extraordinary martial arts chops, no pun intended. Mm. And while he was there, he actually was there at the same time as uh, a young Jackie Chan and ah. uh, Sammo Hung and all these guys who later went on to become these awesome uh, Hong Kong action stars. And um, he had maintained correspondence, especially with Jackie. And around this time, his career was really starting to take off as somebody that was actually, rather than just being like the, the stunt double... Was yes, uh, a leading a leading star in the, in the Hong Kong action. Right, just separating himself from the Bruce Lee with one E. Yeah, exactly. So on May first was the premiere of basically Jackie Chan's big break in the Hong Kong action movie scene, and it was a Snake and Eagle's Shadow, which yeah. I think you and I have probably seen a few times. Uh huh. Also directed by Wen Wu Ping, who's Martial arts choreography is just off the charts awesome. So anyway, this was all coming together, and Jackie Chan gives Wong a call and is like, "Hey man, you gotta, you want to come to my premiere? It's gonna be oh. an after party. It's gonna be awesome." So he gets the time off from work, takes a page from Hulk's learnings, and is like, "I'm gonna travel. Haven't been back here since I was a kid. Gonna see some new stuff, see some more of the world while I'm at it." Has himself just an awesome time and enjoys the premiere. That all is great. Sounds pretty good. However, something deeply evil was taking root in the nascent interwebs. Oh, no. 
internet at its beginning was uh, ARPNET, so I forgot that Advanced Research Projects or something was a company that basically that went and became the internet. And on May 3rd, the very first spam message went out across oh, no. the ARPNET. Yeah. That sounds like the work of Dormammu. Very likely, yeah, or something equally as nefarious, because, I mean, even though this was the first instance, it was a big one. So there was a company called the Digital Equipment Corporation, Ooh. and one of their uh, marketing people basically sent a, yeah, an unsolicited ad email to every single person on the West Coast that had an artist. Wow, that must account. have been tens of people. It was enough people that at least a few of them were probably very annoyed. And one of those was Wong? Well, Wong got back, <laughs> fired up the old PC, and had this message and was like, damn, I wish I had been around, you know, the offices of the Digital Equipment Corporation or had somehow gotten wind that this kind of thing was happening because I see it snowballing. But now the cat's out of the bag, Pandora's box has been opened, and here we are today. Mm -hmm. You can't put the freshness genie back in the bottle. That was from uh, Ron Popeil uh, <laughs> vacuum sealing uh, commercial. No, you can't. No, you can't put a freshness <laughs> can't, genie can't back. Can't be done. Nope. So, thanks a lot, Wong. Uh, well, he did his best. I'm glad you had a good time at the premiere of Snake and Eagle Shadow, though. I'm glad he did, too. He had a very eventful month, which was maybe why he didn't get a chance to do that. Very early in the, on in the month... Um, and not connected to anything else. He was just really happy that uh, on, I believe it was May 4th, the uh, Trailblazers uh, completed their sweep of the Philadelphia 76ers and won their first and to date only NBA title. But after that, he was contacted by a company to do some engineering work. We've talked before about the fact that he's a bit of a gearhead, an, a bit of an engineering buff and has a lot of interest in automobiles. So he was contacted by the Peugeot company to uh, go to France and help them look at some of the equipment that they were doing because they had just taken over Chrysler's European operations in that month. Wong's like, oh, okay. I mean, I'm happy to look at the mechanics of this, but I don't really know a ton about like management, which seems like that's a big piece of what you guys are doing. But I've got a really good friend. Marilyn Loden, and she's a really good uh, management consultant. So do you mind if I bring her along with me and uh, she can, you know, uh, ad advise me with this? And Peugeot's like, that sounds fine. We do not care. Wong, come here. Yeah, they're French. <laughs> they started French and they turned a little Russian at the end. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, you're right. It was a, uh... yeah, Wong, <laughs> you get over here. <laughs> to this day, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I don't even so Wong and Marilyn went over and they were looking at the company and uh, everything seemed to be on the up and up. Seemed like uh, Peugeot was doing an okay job with that shit. So they had a little extra time on their hands and uh, Marcel Marceau had just taken over as head of the big mime school in France. So they decided to take in some, uh, some mime performances by the master, Marcel Marceau. And he was doing like all the hits. You know, he was walking against the wind, and then he was trapped inside a box. Mm -hmm. And Marilyn Loden saw that, and she was like, that box, I mean, that's really impressive mime work that he's doing, but it's like he's trapped under some kind of a, an invisible barrier, like a glass ceiling. 
That is the perfect metaphor for the invisible barriers that women face in corporate culture when they're unable to be promoted past a certain level. It's a glass ceiling. And then later on, uh, once they had gotten home on May 24th, she uh, first published the term glass ceiling. And that was the Wong doing that Wong was doing. Wow, Mimes did a good thing. I know. Yeah. I mean, she did a good thing. But she did She did a good thing. She was, was just inspired by an, some impressive mime work. Marcel Marceau, incidentally, his walking against the wind routine, did you know that that was the inspiration for Michael Jackson's moonwalking? I did not. Yeah. Basically, his walking against the wind was moonwalking. Wow. And uh, Michael Jackson incorporated those into his dance moves. All right. Well, then that's two good inspirations that uh, mimes have come up with, which is two more than I knew about. Tough but fair. I think you owe mimes a big apology, Corey. Oh, Corey is launching into some very elaborate mime work, <laughs> pantomiming <laughs> his contrition. <laughs> oh, wow, that is some very elaborate mime work. Um, <laughs> the way that this particular mime that Corey was impersonating was uh, expressing his contrition was uh, by <laughs> making the jerk-off motion. <laughs> With both hands. It's very contrite. Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. This has been a lot of fun. We will be back next week with the conclusion of the Titans' attempt to let Trigons be bygones. Uh, And we'll be back in two weeks uh, with the conclusion of the Blue Oyster Cult trilogy. The next issue is called The Revenge of Vera Gemini. So that should be fun. Looking forward to both of those. Likewise. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are all up in the internet in all of its myriad of facets. Is that a phrase? It is now. All right. Yeah, if you type in tighten up the defense, uh, you'll probably find us. We've been there the whole time. Waiting. Watching. Wearing capes and dish gloves. Looking. So, you know, you can find us on Facebook and Tumblr and... uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram, which is the page that Lisa runs. I believe we were recently signed up for a Grinder account. Corey got us a LinkedIn page. We're probably on Friendster and um, I don't think that's Hotmail and uh, Angel Fire. That's not still a thing, is it? I don't know. I made my first website there. Oh, did it have rotating gifts? had everything it was the worst ever nice (laughs) so yeah you can you can find us on the internet if you would like to donate monetarily to the show you can do so at patreon.com slash tt wasteland i've been having a lot of fun making uh weekly videos where i talk about comic books that i love for our platinum platypus and higher donors but for any donor you get access to a bunch of bonus material there's a lot of different audio files up there including the monthly podcast what the duck a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show by the time this comes out i believe a new episode of that will be up we talked about howard the duck number 10 in which howard begins his nervous breakdown there's a ton to unpack about it i haven't finished editing it yet but just from the raw data it was a I, th- I think it's going to be one of the best episodes. So, yeah, that's a thing you can do. If you feel like leaving us a review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or Open the Pod Bay Doors, Hal, that's probably a podcatcher, I would guess, then why don't you do that? I think that would be a nice time. It helps people find the show. That's something I'd like them to do. And, uh, yeah, just in general, thanks for listening. Yes. Or, 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 or
Glutton for gold. Golden Asgard has been less golden of late due to the mysterious disappearances of much of its gold. Truly, I am named Godron the Golden. I will gather unto myself all that is gold, so that it may reflect back mine glory. Mighty Thor, canst thou not stem this mysterious flow of Asgard's gold? Nay, rather this evil plot <laughs> calls. <laughs> Why is Thor Australian? I don't know. It's the closest. No, it's the closest I've got. No, you can't do it. Nay, ra- <laughs> nay, rather this evil plot calls for brains instead of brawn. Gathered here are all the golden hostess Twinkies, snack cakes in Asgard. Truly, no lover of gold could resist capturing such a treasure trove of rich golden sponge cakes. I come for golden bars of metal and find golden bars of rich moist cake. <laughs> This is indeed a treasure. Thy taste for gold has entrapped thee. I confess the delicious golden cake of Hostess Twinkie's snack cakes pleases me more than the gold of metal. The creamed filling is worthy of the gods. I don't know who that goofy little guy is who just popped up. He's a goofy. Yeah. Once again, Asgard's gold is for our gods. Truly, tis better to enjoy the golden goodness of Hostess Twinkie's snack cakes than store up gold that does not but gather dust. You You get get a a big big delight in every bite (laughs) of Hostess Twinkie's snack cakes. (laughs) Ah, hurts my throat. (laughs) The laugh and have an accent at the same time. (laughs) No, (laughs) 